This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. The land on which I am lucky enough to raise my son always was and always will be Aboriginal land. This episode of Ready or Not is brought to you by Pure Mama, the leading pregnancy skincare brand in Australia and New Zealand. Loved and trusted by over 40,000 women for pregnancy, postpartum and beyond. What am I if I don't have a big career, at least on paper? I literally just thought mums deserve better. I knew what intrusive thoughts were. I knew they didn't reflect the quality of my parenting. But it won't always be like it is now. It is a conscious rebellion that us mothers have to do every single day to work against those ingrained cultures that exist to reflect what a perfect mother is. Catherine Milhouse has achieved a lot in her professional life, but she'll be the first person to tell you that the confidence she had to back herself in within the workplace didn't exactly translate to motherhood, at least not overnight. Having faced fertility challenges, pregnancy loss and postpartum depression and anxiety, the journey to becoming a mother was far from those perfectly filtered photos we can often see on our Instagram feeds. Q Mother Up, her business that focuses on mother-centric planning with tools and resources to help women experience more supported and sustainable fertility, pregnancy and early motherhood journeys. From her high-flying corporate career to motherhood and starting her own business, Here, we talk the resentment so many of us feel when watching our partner walk out the door, the importance of planning for motherhood, and why we need to focus less on high achieving and more on good enough parenting. I'm Lucinda, this is Ready or Not, and here is the perceptive and powerful Catherine Milhouse. Catherine, I want to take you back to pre-motherhood. I know you've said in another podcast that you were a really high achiever. You wanted to be good at everything. And if you weren't good at something, you would give it up. Tell us about that, Catherine, before she became a mother and what her career looked like. So I left school and went straight to uni and I did um, economics. And then I got got into the honours program and did did a thesis and completed that degree with first class honours and to me that was just the that was the only acceptable level like anything less was just a failure yeah I've had a really diverse career because I focus on health economics through my degree and then I decided that I wanted to get into luxury brand management so in typical Catherine fashion I just tapped into my network and I got in contact with the former head of Chanel in Australia, Asia Pacific, and the head of Prada. So she she headed up those two brands over her, her career. And she started up her own business. And I said, oh, can I come and work with you? And I went, I went down to Sydney for an interview and I worked with her for a few years. And I also consulted back to her when I moved back to Brisbane because I moved back to Brisbane when we got married because my husband got a good job opportunity back in Brisbane. And then from there, I thought, oh gosh, what am I going to do? And to be honest, I, ch- I chased money. So I, I just looked at what industries were doing well. And that, at that time it was coal, as bad as I feel about that now. So I got into logistics 
and I worked in mergers and acquisitions under an um, investment banker that helped do the IPO of the business that I was in. It used to be a, a GOC. Then I worked with her and we were really trying to change the commercial culture of the business and and look at opportunities and be able to replicate industry advancements that we would see in the class one railways, particularly in North America. So I did some pretty cool MA deals um, in that in that period of time. And then there was a big push for women to be better represented in operations because in that time, um, I believe 87% of people in operations were, were men. Wow. And so we were already underrepresented. So they basically, it was a flawed program because they just looked at people who were high achieving in their own areas across the business. And then they would offer you a, a, a job opportunity for six months and then you would go and you would go and do that. And I remember sitting around the table as a, as a woman, one of maybe 12 women in the business, it was a 10,000 person business. Wow. And I remember sitting in that, in that room with this, with the CEO who was making at the time about $14 million a year pre-bonus. And he kind of wanted to pat on the bike from what I could gather. He was like, oh, how great's the program? Like, how's everyone doing? And I said, this program's not great. And, um, everyone else was just really quiet. And he goes, oh, Catherine, why is that? And I said, because you're taking us out of it's not a structured program. So you're not putting us through like a training program specifically. We're not doing it with our peers. We're in silos. And then we're just supposed to go back to our previous role with no advancement in that particular area of expertise. So we haven't, ex- we haven't expanded upon our, our base level, our core skills. We have no guaranteed way to transfer into that area. And then we, haven't, we have no bonus potential for that six months. So I said, where is the incentive for us to actually work hard here? Why are we doing this? And everyone was just shocked. But it was, yeah, it was really flawed. What did he say? What did he say back to you? He, he didn't say anything. <laughs> so basically it was a publicity play. It looked good. Yeah, it was absolutely a publicity play. And I think I was 27 or 28 at the time. And most oh, of the other I women. I love it. I wish I had that in me to take <laughs> it up to someone like that. That is brilliant. So most of the women in the room, to be fair, probably would have been 10 to 15 years older than me. And it was very much the culture. We're just lucky to be in the boardroom. We're just lucky to be in his presence. I already worked closely with the executive team based on the M&A deals that, that we were doing um, and the briefings that we that we gave. So yeah, I had a huge amount of confidence early to sort of speak up for myself in that kind of context it definitely didn't translate into motherhood I can tell you that which a lot of things don't which we'll get to so you're working this very high-flying corporate career I think you have said though in the past that you also did really want to become a mother so that was maybe in the backdrop I always knew that I wanted to be a mom and I got married at I was almost 26 when we got married. So we got married young because I was with my my boyfriend since we were, my now husband since we were eight, I was 18, he was 20. And so I had some health complications when I was um, 17, which basically I had peritonitis and my appendix burst and I had this big life-threatening infection that affected my female organs. So it affected yeah. my ovaries and uterus and you know, my fallopian tubes in particular. And so the discussion was always, uh, you'll, uh, literally I went to 
a leading gynecologist and obstetrician in Brisbane when I was 17, which was a wild experience. And he said, you'll definitely need IVF. And so there was a grieving process then because IVF certainly wasn't spoken about as openly as, as it is now. And it was very confronting to me to think, you know, I may never become a mother because I didn't know how reliable that was going to be. I didn't know how invasive that was going to be. And to someone to say, that's definitely going to be your path. It was very confronting. And so I sort of lived with that and definitely drove a lot of the decisions that I made. Um, you know, I had a female boss for a lot of my career and, and she just kept on saying, you need to get on the best possible money, the best possible conditions before you have children. Uh, and then I got to about 28, 29 and I was in that operational role and I hated it and I felt like I made a big mistake. And I said to my husband, this is the time, like, we're just going to try to, we're just going to see what, what happens. We'll try to get pregnant. We sort of had a year and a half of trying to get pregnant and we didn't. Was that with IVF or without to begin with? No, it was without IVF. So basically yep. I was told, look, give it six to 12 months because you're young enough. So give it six to 12 months and then we'll see. And then I, and then once we got towards that end of 12 months, then I had some sort of quite invasive and painful um, procedures, like exploratory procedures done um, just to see what was going on because it had been over 10 years since that sort of traumatic, you know, health event had, had occurred. And you know, at that stage, they called it unexplained infertility because I said, look, we know you've got compromised fertility, but we can't find exactly the problem. And that kind of contributed largely to my burnout because I was really using getting pregnant as a way out. I was thinking I needed mm. an excuse not to do this anymore because I thought, you know, when you're on a particular path and you feel like you've got people to thank, particularly women who and alliances and you are an underdog and you are underrepresented there is this expectation or this, this internal expectation that you've just got to keep on going yeah and I remember speaking to a lot of people about that and you know that fundamentally the advice was you've just got to stick it out it'll get better and it's hard when you've been so ambitious to then be like, oh, should I dial this down or am I going to regret it? Like the me of five years ago would have been so proud of where I am now. Yeah. And so it get to it got to a point where I was, you know, I had a I definitely was was really burnt out and I um had further health complications. Um and it was like hours I was working and the kind of work I was doing was horrendous. It was absolutely horrendous and it was unsustainable. So then I kind of stepped back completely and thought, oh, what is it that I want to do? And then I just started, I just became a sole trader. I just started to consult to people that I had already worked with previously in my career and um, definitely took a back seat. Like my career became less of a focus for me. And that was really, really hard because I was like, well, what am I if I don't have a big career, at least on paper? Who am I? So that was kind of almost a matrescence experience in a way because like I had completely sort of lost my identity and yeah, I continued down that path and then I had another fertility surgery and we tried to fall pregnant again, maybe four years later and I fell pregnant. So that's sort of where it all started, but there was yeah. definitely this cloud of this is too good to be true. I have to be so diligent. You know, I had had friends and family and knew lots of people who had both struggled to be pregnant and struggled to stay pregnant. And so, you know, that vigilance and that worry started almost immediately once I found out I was pregnant. At this time, were you still freelance consulting, working for yourself? Yeah. 
I was, yeah. And so how did you navigate that time of your life? You're growing a child that you've wanted, you haven't known if you were going to get, you'd taken a while to get there. Mm-hmm. And then you'd experience this huge burnout that had led to a bit of a change in career path. How did you navigate all of those facets of life coming together? Not all that well, I would say. Um, I, I very much use the, I, from a communication point of view, uh, I was very clear that the pregnancy was very precious and it was my number one priority. Uh, so I made that very, very clear. And the people who I was working with at the time, they understood that. And I had, you know, I had good medical care and I had amazingly supportive family. So that was beneficial. And I think for me, like I didn't have any formal maternity leave or any formal structures, which led me back into, you know, back into the paid workforce. And so I did feel a bit lost when I had lived in terms of, well, how am I going to navigate this? I knew that I didn't want to put her into daycare at a young age. And so I think that's really what spurred the start of Mother Up when she was one. It was, you know, both how I felt lost in my career identity and how I wanted to do something that was really meaningfully impactful after the experience that I'd been through. And then obviously, you know, having my own really traumatic experience, I'm sort of married together and sort of have led me to where I am today. And so you eventually meet Liv, she enters the world. Did you have a loose plan of what maternity leave would look like given you worked for yourself? Very, very loose. I mean, I had lived the carrot that dangled ahead of me the entire pregnancy was I just needed to be born healthy and safely. You know, I there was still a big which now in retrospect and through talking with my therapist, I know that I was, you know, I had high functioning anxiety and periods of depression through my life, um, which included around the time that I tried to conceive, but I didn't know it. And I never was treated through therapy, medication or otherwise. And so really I had very little planning in place for me. I had no planning to be absolutely fair. So I had no planning on when I was going to return to work. I had no sort of weekly structured planning on when I was going to see people. I had no real checks and balances in place for myself. It was all about the baby and her just arriving. And then I was just going to sort everything out on a whim because that's what I did. And it sounds fair when you put it like that, like as much as we now know how important postpartum planning is, there is so much to get to that place, especially if you have anxieties during pregnancy. So I can understand that. You're just trying to get through the birth. Yep. And we all know that the pregnancy and the birth, they're both so important, but there is so much life after that Yeah, in almost all the cases. So And I I really learned that lesson the hard way. So let's go into that now. So Liv enters the world. She's safe. She's healthy. But motherhood is quite a struggle and you're not feeling your best. Can you tell us about those early days of motherhood? Yeah. So I had a scheduled cesarean and that was a preference. It wasn't a medical wasn't a medical requirement. And uh, I remember my obstetrician saying, oh, you know, why is that? I said, because it's the safest way way to have a baby. I mean, for me, it was just whatever, whatever was required. I never had any desire. Um, I didn't see labor as personally, I didn't see giving birth to be a, you know, a huge challenge that I wanted to give myself. Do you think it gave you back a sense of control too, when so much of pregnancy and motherhood doesn't give you control? 
Absolutely. I knew the day she was going to be born and, you know, I've had two children and I've never been in labor. So I turned up, there was never any rush. Everyone was chilled. Everyone was just chatting. Normally it was all very calm and that's kind of what I needed. My births were actually great, particularly my second birth was fantastic. And yeah, it was a, it was horrendous. I remember being in recovery after Liv was born and I had a midwife coming at me from behind my head so I couldn't see her and there was not an ask for consent and she was, well, she said, are you planning on breastfeeding? And I said, yes. Once again, I just thought, well, that's what women do. So I'm going to be breastfeeding and I I should be able to do it because it's a skill and we'll all try and it'll be fine. And um, she, yeah, I just remember being effectively milked and you know, I had a real, I had se- severe supply issues. I had, we had latch problems. We were using lines to feed her. We were using nipple she- shields. And I remember that feeling of failure just and, and every, as every feed rolled around, it, I just felt like a sense of dread. And that dread was all day. Um, and then I started to go on medication to sort of boost my supply. And I was on the pump. I was on, you know, hospital grade pump all the time. And I felt like it was a way in which I could be a good mum to her because I felt like I wasn't doing a great job. Now I look back at it and go, well, newborns cry. And of course she was she was unsettled because I was unsettled. But you don't know that as a first-time mum. Like I didn't know anything about nervous system regulation. And, you know, there has been, I've had to do a lot of work to work through that guilt that I felt that I had induced, you know, some distress on her. You'd never know it. You'd never know it now. And, you know, she's, you know, our attachment and our relationship is amazing. And, you know, we got there. We got there in the end. I think that a lot of the health professionals around you just told you to keep going with breastfeeding, even though it was probably getting close to destroying you mentally, I can imagine. What was the turning point? Who was the person that told you, hey, you're a great mother without, without having to punish yourself this way? It was my psychiatrist, I'd say. So I ended up, I started seeing her, the one that I, I'm still with today. I started seeing her at seven weeks postpartum. She's one of the best in the business. Um, you know, she she could tell that breastfeeding, I mean, it is a very common trigger for a lot of women, yeah. feeding trauma for a multitude of reasons. But she sort of knew who I was. And I was somebody that only gave live formula in the hospital and I refused to have formula in the house and I refused to give in and, you know, and to be, to be fair, yes, that was a, a big pressure that I put on myself, but it was also very much the rhetoric that I was hearing through the midwives and the lactation consultants that I was seeing. Nobody had really picked up, hey, maybe mixed feeding would be a good option for you to explore, even not just necessarily going to formula, but just, um, you know, I potentially would have breastfed my son if I would have had a less traumatic experience with Liv and maybe, you know, mixed feeding would have been probably much more sustainable and less hard on my mental health uh, because I became really obsessive about it. So, you know, I know that I have, I've always had an obsessive personality and, um, you know, in retrospect, I I definitely have experienced OCD throughout my life, but I only found that out through being diagnosed with my, you know, by my psychiatrist. But she was very skillful. She sort of, you know, got me on the right medications and we started therapy and it was really by about sort of, I don't know, maybe five, six months postpartum, she started to talk about the breastfeeding because I, you know, I set up just 
just, you know, I've just got to feed her. Like this is the only option and it's really hard. And I was effectively expressing and bottle feeding her a huge amount of the time because the latch was still really difficult and lived in, wasn't able to feed without nipple shields until she was about seven months old. And so there was also like, I wasn't breastfeeding in public. Um, so that kept me at home a lot. Yeah. So it was, it was really my psychiatrist who got me into a point to sort of, to say, you know, how, like, why don't you consider doing some mixed feeding or, and, you know, and it was, I had the, I had the other people to feed her because I was bottle feeding her. So I had a, a maternity nanny, the nanny to help my mum and my husband. So it wasn't so much that. It was more so just taking the pressure off feeding her any source of food and nourishment. Um, but really I continued, I continued, but she was the first person to sort of open the door. I didn't slam it closed on her. I started mixed feeding, I think at about 10 months old, but that was largely allergy driven because I was on a, a really strict diet and I sort of got to the point by 10 months where I started to feel more like myself and thinking, okay, well, I've got to get her used to a, a formula now. So we did some mixed feeding from now. Another amazing female startup doing great things, Pure Mama supports women on their journey to motherhood with nourishing body care that they can trust. Powered by pure and naturally derived ingredients that work alongside your body's changes and provide nurture and comfort to those areas that deserve some extra love. I purchased a bottle of their liquid gold belly oil, which is sold out three times over, And I can assure you, it's as good as it sounds. Not only has it helped me with my increasingly itchy belly, it's also become a ritual at the end of the day to make my tired and sore body feel good in late pregnancy. And what's even better is that all products are midwife tested, approved and recommended. Shop the full Pure Mama range, including their signature belly oil, scrubs, nipple butter and gift sets at puremama, that's M-A-M-A, dot com or online from Mecca Beauty. And I know you have said that you resented your partner, that he could sort of walk out the door and live a normal life a lot of the time and that you did fear being alone with Liv, which I think are two sentiments that so many mothers can appreciate and and understand and relate to. How do you feel thinking back to that now? What do you remember most of those times? I've apologised to my husband and I've had big discussions with him um, and they largely came around when we were talking about having another child because, you know, he, he actually sort of, he never made me feel bad for how I was because he knew that I was unwell um, during that first year. But upon those discussions about having a second child, he's just like, you were so unpleasant. You were so mean to me. You were, you were so black and white. You were so harsh. Your standards were so high. I felt so criticized. And the resentment definitely fueled how, you know, how I reacted and how I responded because yeah, I was massively jealous of him and how he was able to be a great dad because he could be there part of the time. Whereas I was there all of the time and there was a sense of novelty between him and Liv. Whereas with me, you know, I'm sure at times she was sick of me and I was sick of her. So yeah, the, the resentment was huge and the resentment you know, it ebbs and flows. Um, you know, now we're in a position where Liz's four and a half and Ted's one. And 
it's almost like there's a, some re- reverse resentment on the weekends because I feel like the way that we structure our life, he's almost the default parent on the weekends and I'm the default parent during the week yeah. because he's the primary caregiver in our family. And I try to do my work on the weekend and I try to do a lot of socializing that I'm not able to do during the week and, and all that sort of stuff. So there's definitely, you know, that plays, that plays on, on both sides of the coin. And I'm a little bit proud of that, to be honest, to actually have gotten to a point where <laughs> you're defying the odds like you did in that boardroom way back, re- yeah. way back when too. <laughs> it was about a year postpartum that Mother Up really started to take shape. Uh-huh. Firstly, can you tell me about You said that about 10 months you started to feel a little bit more yourself. So tell us about how that started to play into it and then what led to you actually going, there's a business idea here and I need to help other people not feel the way I did in those early days. Yeah, I think I finally got to a point, you know, in the the last quarter of her first year of life where I started to to be a lot more self-compassionate and I was seeing people, close people around me who were struggling. I was seeing that there was such a lack of quality, evidence-based and balanced information out there. I had just started to find a really supportive, like really great supportive social media accounts that weren't there or I didn't find them when Libby was little and I found social media really triggering. And um, I literally just thought mums deserve better. This is terrible. This is absolutely terrible. What What is publicly available what what a lot of women are experiencing and thinking that that is a true reflection of motherhood and the quality of their mothering. So I originally started thinking I was going to be doing workshops and then COVID hit and I thought, okay, well, you know, literally COVID hit the the February, March of the the year that I launched. So I thought, oh, I'm just going to rethink this. And that's when I started to develop some tools and resources that I offer for free because I just wanted women to to preemptively think about what their postpartums could look like. So, you know, the postpartum planning framework that I created, you know, it is a business model canvas framework and it's something that I've adapted to motherhood and, and it's something that that poses some, some questions that I really want people to think about so that they think about, well, what am I going to do to try to reduce resentment and and, you know, better allocate best allocate you know mental load in our household and things like that they're things that i would have loved to have have known common problems when people have babies um and something that i can you know i encourage women to talk to talk about with their close support people and you know within their families and so i literally get a kick every time somebody downloads it or downloads any of my resources i i just think oh that's one i'm hoping it in some little way this will make their postpartum a little bit better. And so you're doing a lot of work in the space professionally, which I imagine, of course, is work that you've done personally too. And you've spoken a little bit about the relationship stuff that came up when thinking about going from one to two children. What else did you do to feel ready to experience pregnancy and motherhood again with your son, Ted, after an experience that had brought a lot of trauma on for you? It took a lot of therapy to get to a point of trying again. And yeah, we, my husband and I just had enormous discussions about how that would look and what support we would require in order for that to happen. 
based on COVID, he was working from home when we were trying to get pregnant and when my daughter was in her early toddler years. So there was already a really good safety net and he was really great at, you know, almost uh, almost no meetings were off limits to live. So often she would just wander and have a chat to her dad during work. And so that environment definitely supported us in making that decision because in, it, there was no perceivable change in that, in that, you know, dynamic in that work at home dynamic. So I was very structured in my thinking in terms of what I was going to be, what type of help I was going to be asking for. So we thought about, you know, and this is a question I ask clients too. I say, well, you know, what, if, if it's a subsequent child, like what, what worked last time and what didn't and why. And, um, so I knew obviously the breastfeeding was traumatic. And so that was the decision very, very early on. And so I wasn't going to be breastfeeding this time. And if anybody who I encountered wasn't supportive of that, then they weren't going to be part of it. So I had great support from my obstetrician and that support then filtered through to the maternity ward when I had Ted, when I was in hospital for five days, there was, you know, it was very clear that these are my feeding preferences and there'll be no discussions about it. I required medication. So I stayed on medication when I was pregnant in the event that um, my mental health declined during pregnancy and also let, it also gave me a baseline for postpartum. So not having to have a ramp up or an adjustment period because it's commonly discussed that your mental health in pregnancy is the best determinant for your postpartum mental health. So we wanted to keep me as healthy as possible. Um, and I was much more flexible in my thinking about that because I remember with Libby, I felt an enormous uh, worry because I had health anxiety anyway. Um, you know, I ended up being on multiple medications while breastfeeding her and I was so worried about what sort of impact that was that would have on her. And then with Ted, I was so comfortable and I had received the right information. I knew about Lactmed and, you know, we chose a medication that A, it worked for me and B, it was one of the safest in pregnancy. And so I felt like I had a really good safety net there because there was room to move with dosages if I did get sick. So there was a lot of, it was really about keeping me well and making sure that my husband was also well supported. Um, and that support largely came through my family and then paid support um, in the form of a maternity nanny because that's what we we had with Libby as well. So, you know, a lot of people look at the, you know, if you're in a position, and because I was part-time consulting, so I was eligible for the maternity leave, paid parental leave payment, and we just made that financial decision that, I don't know where the amount it is after tax, but let's just say 11000 We said that money is going to be spent on postpartum support for me in the first year. Oh, great. As in the government leave, you literally yeah. just thought that's my budget for me staying well so that this family can function. Yeah. And that, and that's what it was. And, the, and all, and yeah. the vast majority of the vast majority of that was put towards maternity nanny support, which meant that my husband and I both got sleep. I had a qualified health professional prompting me about, you know, things to look out for with Ted, things to look out for with me. She, because she had nannied for all different ages of kids, she would bring things to live to do the next day. She helped with the family transition and the dynamics. And wow. she was very good at helping me understand why, how Liv was feeling and ways in which I could 
you know, help her adjust because she was going from being an early only child for three and a half years to then being a big sister. Yeah. And so we rode the waves of her crying and like, oh, it's hard being a big sister and it's hard being away from you, mummy. And, you know, she had five nights away from me with her grandparents when Ted was born. So it was a really huge period. And so for the first three months, um, we we worked, we we budgeted for two, but then we ended up we ended up extending that based on what we had what we had available. Um, so we had three months of support between three and five nights a week. And so how do you? I mean, this is relatively recent because I think Ted just turned one. But how do you reflect on what an impact that had on your mental health now compared to going around motherhood the first time? Oh, I like you know. The maternity nanny who we had with Livy, she started working with us. We found her out of, you know, in desperation. She was the third one that I interviewed and we found her in desperation. Um, I think I was about four and a half weeks postpartum. So we actually had her for a few nights because we all thought as soon, as long as I can get some solid sleep, then I would stop crying and things would be okay. But obviously I would be given the opportunity to sleep because I had a phenomenal health professional who I trusted, who I was really happy to look after Liv and I wasn't sort of hanging around and listening out for her. I was given the opportunity to sleep and I still couldn't sleep because my anxiety was so extreme. And so I knew, you know, I had her lined up for the night that I came home from hospital. So we knew the cesarean date. Um, We kept in close contact. I actually, I had a miscarriage before Ted. I even had her lined up then with that baby Um, because I was, you know, I was like, you know, can you be my person again? And, you know, we're close. And she was like, of course I can and I can do it. It was like having family there when when I came home from hospital and then big cuddles and she had a present for me, a present for Livy. She was so excited to meet Ted. She was so excited to be there for us. And so, you know, we knew that that's exactly what we needed first up because we didn't want to prolong any sleep deprivation. And that's something that I speak to my clients about too, because, you know, that may not be available or achievable for everybody. And I, you know, I'm very aware of that, but thinking about ways in which mothers-in-laws, fathers-in-laws, you know, older cousins, whoever it may be, friends, my sister-in-law offered to come and stay with me up in hospital if Libby wasn't adjusting well with my with my parents. So we had like a backup plan if, if Libby needed that extra support from a parent when I was in hospital. You know, it's just thinking about ways in which you can you can lean on people and leverage your resources to sort of best suit, you know, your your main sort of target target areas. And for me, it was all around um, sleep. So I was on sleep aid. So I was on sleep medication for the first, I'd say, five or six weeks. So I would take a sleeping tablet and go to sleep and I was off duty. And that was something that my psychiatrist really pushed. She said, I want, because based on my previous experience, she said, we need you to stay well and sleep is such a massive driver of that. I saw on your Instagram some incredible research that 60% of mothers feel like they're failing and three out of four mothers reach breaking point before seeking help. Talk to us about the perfect mother myth and how we change our mindset and expectations so that we, I guess, don't fall that way. Well, I've done it. I've done some amazing collaboration, some amazing collaborations with Lisa, a Dr. Lisa researcher. And um, yeah, I'm very passionate about the perfect mother myth and the good enough mother. And, you know, a lot of this came out of my own therapy sessions. So, you know, I would, I would go into therapy when Livy was, you know, between one and two and I'd talk about how I'd raise my voice at her or I had, you know, I just didn't want to sit in the ground and play with her one day or 
I wasn't enjoying every moment and, and, you know, isn't that what I'm supposed to be? Does that mean I'm a bad person? Um, and you know, we started, she said, well, have you ever heard of the good enough mama? And I said, no, I haven't. And it was just life changing for me, um, at that point to sort of how it, it was, it was a similar sort of reaction to when I, when I was introduced to the term matrescence, which really wasn't until Libby was one as well. So there was just this obvious reason that, you know, society sets us up to effectively be, be one and all to, to be this unattainable creature and anything less than is not good enough. And that is the requirement for our children to be, you know, secure and adjusted adults. And it's, it's a horrendous myth that is really put in, put in place as a, as a tool for coercive control. It limits mothers. It makes mothers really, really unwell. And I think that the more that we can share with our fellow mothers and fellow women who potentially, you know, haven't yet had children or in a position of potentially deciding if or when they're going to be having children, we have to be really honest about our experiences and the the great resources that we rely upon in order to function day to day because it, it is a conscious rebellion that that us mothers have to to do every single day to work against those ingrained cultures that exist to reflect what a perfect mother is. And for mothers that really struggle on like a really deep level, they have intrusive thoughts. They don't necessarily want their baby for periods of time and they're really struggling. One of the biggest fears can be if I bring this up, someone's actually going to take this child off me. I assume slash my thoughts are that partly that's a systemic thing and that we need serious systemic change in order for mothers not to feel that way. But it is also about, as you say, the way we talk about motherhood and the way we need to be honest about it. How do you think we change that narrative to a point where women and mothers and primary caregivers are safe to say just how much they're struggling without a fear that their child is going to be taken from them? You're, you're totally right. It is a top-down and bottom-up approach that, you know, that will get us there faster. I think it needs to be better perinatal screenings, obviously, and better perinatal discussions about the commonality of these issues and the fact that these are very normal things that exist in up to 100% of parents in the case of intrusive thoughts, for example, and they're not a reflection upon you as a, as a parent and research actually shows that you're less likely if you are having potentially intrusive, true intrusive thoughts about harm coming to your baby and the most distressing ones are that you are in fact causing harm to your baby, that you are actually less likely of doing that than the, and the average person in the population. Oh, wow. I've never heard that research. Yeah, because... The reality is, is that intrusive thoughts come about when, you know, your mind is, is incredibly, you know, charged. And that's, that's primarily in the first six months of, of becoming a parent. And I, I certainly um, experienced intrusive thoughts with both of my postpartums and both of them manifested very similarly. So I, I thought in both cases that I'd purposely drop my kids and it was really in the second time because I knew what intrusive thoughts were. I knew the commonality of them. I knew they didn't reflect the quality of my parenting. And I knew the way to address them in my mind, which was you're an intrusive thought. 
you do not reflect my actual wishes or intentions, I'm going to let you float away. Now, in, when I was able to do that, the intrusive thoughts dissipated and it became a general a general part of my depression and anxiety treatment because, yes, they can be a symbol of perinatal mental health challenges, but they're not necessarily a symbol or a symptom of. So it was so much less distressing with Ted than it was with Liv because I thought if I'm if I tell somebody about this, yeah, they will literally think that this is my wish or intention, this child is not safe. Yeah. Um, so really it, it becomes both you know, it's it's an onus on if you're brave enough and you're far enough away from the experience, it's 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 an onus on people like me and you if we've experienced those to to, to more openly talk about it as well as the health professionals and the people who work with pregnant women and mothers to talk about this and to send people in the right direction when they're looking for this kind of information. I, I made a reel with science-minded um, Siobhan Kennedy Constantini about intrusive thoughts because both of us experienced them really severely um, with our first babies. And um, it's something that we're really, really proud of because it's just something that we hope will just roll around the internet and people are able to see. And we're hoping that people who are potentially in a shame spiral are able to see it and potentially then spur help or further research for example so you've had your business now for a few years and you're a mother of two what does making work work as a mother look like for you these days um that's a really really good question i'm much better now at not having really quantitative or really structured um, goals for me at the moment. I, you know, I'm very much looking at where do I think I can have the greatest impact or where do my passions really lie? So I know what I want to be doing over the next three years. I know, and I'm just trying to do what I'm really passionate about at the moment with two small kids and one kid full-time and one kid only part-time in kindy. I'm just trying to focus on, you know, what really lights my fire because my opportunity to work is very, it, it has to be flexible. Um, and it often has to be out of hours. So I, um, you know, I do a lot of prevention work. Like I, I do a lot of work in preventing distress because, you know, as you brought up that start, 60% of parents feel like they're failing. Um, 75% of women or 74% of women hit breaking point before they reach out, um, you know, re- before they, they reach out for mental health support. And so, you know, I do a lot of that prevention work and trying to prevent distress and, that, and that's really rewarding. And often I'm doing that with women who have potentially had a, a bad postpartum previously um, or, who, or who have had, maybe maybe it's their first baby, but they've had a, um, they've had a history of mental health issues and you know, that's a huge driver or risk factor for postpartum distress. So, you know, that's fantastic. But what I'm really chasing and what I'm really wanting to do is actually be working with people who are really unwell. And doing that in a more structured format through mother-baby units or people who are potentially like me who didn't go into a mother-baby unit, but they are, you know, highly supported at home, for example, because, you know, I've informally helped friends, for example, who have been at MBUs and helping them, you know, with their discharge plans and seeing them sort of reintegrate. And, you know, there's such a, there's such a, a high rate of, um, relapse, like in terms of having to be readmitted or, you know, becoming in, you know, severe distress again. So that's sort of, that's what lights my fire. So that's sort of, 
where I'm focusing my energies at the moment. But making work work, to be honest, at the moment, it is something that is, it's there, but I'm not putting any pressure on myself to have a certain number of clients on the go at one time or um, anything sort of that specific. I'm just doing things that really light my fire. I've absolutely loved hearing your story and the work you're doing is incredible. I have one last question for you. If you could go back to Catherine, that's a new mother and tell her one thing about the Catherine of today, what would it be? Well, that's such a good question. I think I would say something like it'll all be worth it. And I'm not saying that in a way to like deter people from getting help, but it's a it, it's a beacon of hope to say, you know, it won't always be like it is now. Um, because I remember when Livy was so little, I thought I absolutely ruined my life. You know, you don't really realise, even though you can sort of intellectually realise that they are going to grow up and maybe one day they'll sleep in their own bed and they won't be as demanding and they won't be in nappies. Like, I remember that thought that I had completely uprooted my life and it was for no benefit. So, yeah, I think I would say, like, it gets better. It really, really gets better. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Where can people find you and your work online? So you can contact me um, through my website, which is www.motherup.com.au, and I'm on Instagram as well, at underscore motherup. Thanks for listening to Ready or Not. If you liked the show, please tell your friends, subscribe or write a review. You can also find us on Instagram at readyornot.pod. That's it for today. We'll see you next time.